0: I could do that again, how about you? Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you to go to Genesis, but I'm going to start out with Romans in just a minute. So Genesis chapter 3, we're going to finish that chapter today. Um, there's only two verses, 22 and 20, through 24. So if you have it electronically or maybe a hard copy, I'm going to invite you to go there. Or if you're new New Hope, you'll also discover that the verses are going to be up on the screen. You can follow along that way. But before we get into it, I would uh, love to pray with you, especially about what Michael mentioned earlier, what's going on in the world, lack of peace, and, you know, it's just a very bizarre thing to be able to go home and watch from the comfort and safety of your home, a nation being dismantled, and it's such an uncomfortable yet captivating feeling and yet sickening at the same time. So we really do need to be praying for what God's allowing to happen in the Ukraine. Nothing escapes God's notice, right? He's sovereign, and he can stop it in a heartbeat, but for whatever reason, it's being allowed right now, and so we have to ask God to accomplish his purpose, but at the same time, recognizing God uses circumstances like this to draw people into the kingdom. It triggers lots of questions. I mean, this morning already, I've had so many individuals who wanted to talk about last day's things, end times things, because it captivates us when these things unfold. So, God may use what's going on in the Ukraine to draw people into the kingdom. He may turn world leaders to him because of what's going on in the Ukraine. So, we need to be praying because God commands us to do that but also seeking Him because of what we're about to examine this morning and how this would speak to our lives. I want to start you off with an anchor verse and then pray with you. And here's my verse I'm going to be using this morning. Acts 4.12, speaking of Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You agree with that? Say amen. amen. You've got a leg up on the rest of the world. Let's pray. There's no greater power that we could speak to than you. You're worthy of all the praise that we can bring. Father, simply by coming to you in the name of Jesus Christ, we recognize that we're ushered into your presence. And we know that you can stop world wars. And we plead with you to do that. We ask that you would bring peace back. It's only been five days, Father, and yet we're sick of it. We're sick of what we're seeing. Yet we know that you have a, a, a will, a purpose, and you allow things that confuse us. So we ask that you would, again, be patient with us as we're trying to sort through why evil men continue to prosper. But Father, it may be that those individuals who behave in evil ways are the very people who are precious to you and you want to see brought into the kingdom. So we pray for souls that are distant from you, who are far from you, who have no relationship with you, that you would redeem their souls, for you are not willing that any would perish. So we lift up this opportunity to you. That We'd be very mindful of people that we interact with who might be utterly afraid We know that you control all things, so we put it back in your hands and ask that you would accomplish your purposes, but that you would restore peace. We also pray for ourselves in this moment as we're about to turn our attention to your word and the way that it would speak to us. Remind us again, God, of who we are and that we are utterly dependent upon you because there is no surviving in the wilderness without you. So God, we ask for these things in Jesus' majestic name and all God's people said, amen. Nine miles north of Traverse City, it's a beautiful, picturesque, quaint village with phenomenal shopping and activities throughout the summertime that would fit on a magazine cover. You know, there's the water skiing, there's the golfing, there's the boating, there's everything you could imagine in the summertime. Christine shores, crystal clear blue water, makes people from other parts of the nation who come to northern Michigan looking at those waters saying, what in the world? Our water down south doesn't look like this at all. It, it captivates people. It's the vacation Mecca. Everybody wants to go there in the summertime. Yet if you step back to 1840, in that exact same geographic location, You'd find no vacationing happening. It's wilderness. It's pure Michigan, mind you, but it's raw, it's rugged, it's no place for the faint of heart. And individuals who live there have to survive day after day after day, scratching out a living. They know what it is to survive in the wilderness. So, life in that land was anything but a vacation. And Tom and Martha had absolutely no idea what they were stepping into. See, Tom was a surveyor for the United States government, and Tom and Martha lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He had been around areas in the United States that were remote and rugged, to be sure, but nothing like what they were about to encounter. Yet, his job assignment said very specifically, you need to relocate to the north, and begin surveying and assessing this region of northern Michigan. And so they sold everything that they had. Grand Rapids wasn't much of a society at that time compared to what it is today, but it was a bustling city compared to the rest of Michigan, furniture capital of the world. Tom and Martha are very happy there, but he got his reassignment. And so they sold everything that they had, and they went to a lumber mill and bought wood and built a raft. And whatever possessions they still kept, they put on that raft along with their toddler child, and Tom and Martha put the raft in the river down below the rapids that Grand Rapids has become famous for, and they hit every twist and bend on their way out towards Lake Michigan to the mouth of the Grand River, to a little village today we call Grand Haven. At that time, it was known as Ferriesburg named for another individual who just a few years earlier had founded that city, my great-great-great-grandfather, by the way, William Montague Ferry. But that's another story. Tom and Martha, when they get to the mouth of Lake Michigan at the river, they take that raft that they built, and they cut down a tree and construct a mast. They take the sail that Tom had purchased, and they put a sail on their raft. And he had built a rudder back in Grand Rapids, and they attached the rudder to the raft, and they set sail out into Lake Michigan. After they break through the surf, they begin going up the coastline, catching a southwest wind. Along the shoreline, they can see plumes of smoke coming up. The French traders, the trappers, they built temporary shelters, and they can see them along the shoreline. And eventually, they'll do the same thing. That first evening, they break camp and set up for they can cook supper there. The next morning, they go out again. And day after day after day, they repeat the same process, making their way up the shoreline until they come to these giant sand structures that old-timers back in Grand Rapids had told them about to watch for as a landmark. We call them the Sleeping Bear Dunes. Eventually making their way around the tip of what we today call the Leelanau Peninsula, they set their course due east Passing another smaller peninsula, they land on the shores of a very rugged stretch of beach. No other humans around that they can see. The only other humans living in the area are the tribal natives that have been there for centuries, but they're rarely seen. Immediately upon landing on shore on what would one day be called Elk Rapids, they take apart the raft and they begin building a very crude structure. They take the sail, put it over the top of the structure to keep the rain and the elements out, and in that day that they finished that, Tom set out on his first journey. He left his wife and toddler behind, and he walked to Grand Rapids. See, so you can't survive in the wilderness without the livestock, and Tom had the foresight to buy a cow and a calf, but he couldn't take it on the raft. It's back in Grand Rapids. Google Earth says it's 147 miles by foot from Elk Rapids to Grand Rapids, but that's if you use (laughs) US-131. He didn't have that. It's rugged, raw, pristine, harsh wilderness. So using his surveying skills, he charts a course and walks all the way to Grand Rapids, receives his livestock only to turn around and walk all the way back up to Elk Rapids. That's a hard life. That's a rugged existence. And they began, upon his return, scratching and clawing out survival. From the perspective of 2022, it may seem very adventurous and very romantic to live in that period of time. But for those who lived it and had to endure the elements, it was truly daily survival and it was only made possible by using the resources of the land and their ingenuity and the toilsome sweat of their brow, then they could harvest and eat of the land, the bread that God had spoken of. Genesis 3.17, God's speaking to our ancient parents, and he says this, "'Cursed is the ground because of you, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life.'" Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Life in the wilderness is hard. Life apart from God in the wilderness is brutal. Yet that's what Adam and Eve are about to encounter. And they're going to discover along the way that there is purpose in this wilderness journey. In the process, they're going to learn what you have learned as a believer in Jesus Christ. They're going to learn hope, and they're going to learn to trust God. But God has to give them some directives first, and we get this piece of information. So the wilderness journey that your parents started out, your ancient parents started with, 22, verse 22, part A. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Immediately, you should be asking yourself, in what way do they know it? Like intellectually? Yeah, to be sure, intellectually, they know good and evil. But also, and much more viscerally, they know it by experience. They know it from within. They know it like a cancer patient knows it. They've realized it with inside themselves. Previously, they've been built holy, equipped by God with all the strength necessary to maintain moral integrity and a right relationship with God. But freely, we've seen they chose to distrust God. They've severed the relationship. And that's what all sin brings, by the way, A severed relationship with God, from God. And the result of being separated from God is life in the wilderness. So we get the second part of verse 22, part B. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Many of you know that I I like quoting old dead theologians because they've really proven themselves. And you can look back on their life and know that they didn't stray. Carl Friedrich Kiel, or Kyle, uh, very famous for writing a commentary with a friend of his. He had this insight on what you just read. When cultivating the soil, man has before his very eyes both his origin and his future. (laughs) That's really good. You work in the land? You're looking at where you came from, and you're looking at where you're going to. Really good insight. To this point in Genesis, we've seen God deal with Satan, foretelling his future final fate. Say that fast three times, future final fate, future. Can't do it. That's what God's done. He said, you will be destroyed by the seed of the woman We saw that, and we saw God pronounce his judgment on the humans. We looked at that most recently, and the consequences fell very heavy on Adam and Eve. And now, you're going to see it right now, they will soon be experiencing life in the wilderness, far from the magnificent ease of garden life. To be sure, also, a separation from God. And the extraordinary part about that, they had walked with God. God had walked with them in the cool of the day, the Bible says. And that's done. No more. Their daily life is now going to be filled with the effects of the fall, encountering obstacles they've never known. But you know them, you live with them every day, but they've never known these kind of obstacles. But also, they're going to be dealing with a new sensation. It's called guilt. You've grown up with it. You know what guilt is, but it's new to them. They've never known it. Yet it's the first effect of the fall. The first effect of the fall was the realization of shame and the guilt that went with it. Look look with me. Chapter 3, verse 7. Do you remember this one? And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And you remember the result of that? The result was they tried to cover themselves. They tried to run and hide out of sheer embarrassment. They tried to cover up what they had done. So now shame is on them and embarrassment is on them, and they begin to feel the impulse of evil. So that's what sin does every single time. It brings guilt and it brings shame. So through sin, the humans obtained that very thing, which they did not have before a conscious knowledge of good and evil. In other words, a guilt complex. See, it couldn't have existed previously because there was no sin. They were perfect in the garden. There was no need for a guilt complex, and yet the knowledge of good and evil means they now have a conscience. They now have a guilt complex because guilt is the byproduct of sin. Unfallen humans did not possess a conscience as we know it, they were perfectly innocent. But as soon as they rebelled, they became conscious of their moral wrongdoing and their eyes were open to no evil. And conscience, meaning the moral instinct that you have within you, is something that is now common to human nature. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about the reality that that in itself is a witness of God's existence, it's part of natural revelation. Let me show you this. This comes from A.W. Pink. He said this back in 1940. Man has that within him which witnesses to his fallen and sinful condition. But not only does the conscience bear witness to man's depravity, it is also one of the marks of a personal creator's handiwork. See, even your conscience that you have within you is a witness to God. Why is that true? Because you cannot evolve a conscience. Yet we all have one. We all have it within us. So it's no more the result of evolution than it is the ability to have reasoning or memory. Yet, it it can be refined. It can be cultivated. It can be developed. So the conscience that you have in you right now is the still small voice of God within you testifying to the fact that you are not your own master. But rather, you're responsible to a moral law which either approves... Or reproves you. Hear that again. That thing with inside you, it either approves or it reproves you. Paul writes about that very truth. I want to show you Romans 7 in just a second. For the humans at this moment who chose to rebel, from that time forward, our world filled with the human capacity to defy even the very things that we know that we should be doing. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 7. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. In other words, he's saying, it's a good thing I have boundaries in my life. It's a good thing the law of God is in place because it keeps me in check. But watch where he goes, verse 17. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. Paul almost sounds schizophrenic, doesn't he? (laughs) Yet we can all identify with that. His conscience is pricking him, and he's saying, I know I cannot within me do the good routinely that I want to do, and his conscience haunts him. And mind you, by the way, when Paul writes that, he is not giving himself a pass, saying like, I have no control over this. He's speaking to the reality that sin is really powerful and has the capacity to overcome. So... In Genesis chapter 3, humanity has a new set of choices. Do I take this newfound knowledge of good and evil, in other words, my conscience, and choose things that please God, or do I ignore that and do I pursue things that please my inner desires? that go to my inner urges. How will I use that going forward? Well, God already knows our heart. He already knows what we're prone to do. He knows human nature because he built us. And because mankind now has this new inner awareness, God has to say this in 22b. Now, he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden. That therefore is really important. I learned in Bible college that when you read therefore in the Bible, you need to ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? Why is that therefore, therefore? That therefore is really, really important because of this. Because of this conscience Because of this new reality, God has to take an imperative action. Now, because of sin, we're not only separated from God. Adam and Eve are not only separated from God. They've now got guilt and shame that's entered their world, and it presents two enormous difficulties. First one is this. What do you do with your guilt? You've got the guilt it haunts you. What are you going to do with that going forward? And here's the second component. How are you going to explain these things to your future children that God has promised you that you're going to have? God has already said they're going to be the progenitors of the earth. How are you going to explain that to them? How can you help them know this God who created them and promised them a future way of escape? How could Martha and Tom possibly help their toddler child who could not even be old enough to know what life was like in Grand Rapids when all he's ever seen is the wilderness and never known society, even as graphically as his parents might have explained it to him? So Adam and Eve have an insurmountable problem on their hands. So I ask you this question. How badly would you want to reset the clock? Like, I'd like a do-over, please. Wouldn't you want to say that to God? I'm sorry, I didn't mean this. Can we just go back and start over again? How badly would you want to reset the clock? Verse 22b, finish it out with me. He might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The humans know enough to be a great danger to themselves because they now know the consequences of evil and the enormous toll that it's taking, they will try to fix it. That's what we do. That's what we all do. We know we're separated from God in our human nature and we want to do something. So clearly, if possible, they would really prefer to alleviate their circumstances and to lessen the outcome, especially the inevitable death. Like, wouldn't you? If you had that ability, wouldn't you? If, if you're Adam, you're looking for some way to change the circumstances of the mess that you've made. So you're feeling things that you've never felt before. You've got these inner urges, these impulses that you've never known, and they're not good impulses. It helps you to understand, it's reflected in the way that you accuse your wife, you're trying to shift blame, just to cover your own stupidity. It really kind of echoes of Romans chapter 7. i saying, I'm doing the things I don't want to do and I know there's evil within me. I can hear echoes of the garden and the fall in what Paul wrote. And then to add to that, your shame is compounded by the new reality of this enormous survival effort it's going to take just to get one day of food because ultimately you know that you're biological dying. You can see the decay around you. You knew there were consequences for rebelling, but you didn't understand the depth of the struggle. The impact is all too visceral, and it's inside you. Would you not do anything you could to reverse that? Made in God's image, but utterly aware of the presence of evil. It's all through them. And it's pervasive. It's in every thought. So if you're headed towards death, but you have an understanding of what paradise was, and you can get at that thing... You're going to do whatever you can to get back there. Your next thought is going to be, I want to fix this. So the natural impulse of fallen man, God is saying, is to sprint towards the tree of life because humans want to fix the relationship. So in verse 22, God's saying, I know man's thoughts. I know exactly what Adam's thinking and I know what he will do. He's going to go to the tree of life because his thinking is, if I can just get there, I will mitigate the consequences and I'll make myself well. So verse 24 says, so he drove the man out. If you back up just a verse and a half, you'll see that he sent them out. Drove is much more aggressive language. And the Hebrew word that's in your notes, you see it also up on the screen, is garash. It's the language that's used in the Old Testament when a divorce took place. It's the language of detachment They've been banished. There's this decisive separation in which God drove them away. And it's very graphic language. So what pitiful irony is this, that Adam, who just earlier was once there to tend and care for that same garden, is now guarded from it. Now, mind you, to this point, God had not yet driven them out. We're being told how it unfolded. So I want to speculate with you for just a moment. I'm just going to tell you in advance that I'm speculating. I try and do that, but here's how I'm speculating. I think this verse is indicating that Eden existed for a long time after the fall. There's a lot of theologians who study this stuff intensely, and most of them have come to the conclusion that it looks like Eden was there for a 1,000 years, up until the time of the flood of Noah. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I, I want to speculate on this. The reason I think it's been there a long time after the fall is for one, it would take a long while for that perfect world that God had declared very good, not just the garden, but all of his creation, very good. It would take a long time for that perfect world to feel the effects of the fall and for that decay to become really burdensome and loathsome to the degree that Adam would even be thinking, I need that. I need that fruit. See, we know in the story that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is still there, and we know that the tree of life is still there. That means the garden is still there, which means the rivers, the waterfalls, the jewels, the precious gems. That's speculation. Here's what we do know, because this is based on Scripture. What we do know at this moment is the consequences are so visceral. It's enough to affect Adam's mind and this knowledge of good and evil, this conscience is tearing him. He wants to get at that thing, and he's thinking the tree is right there. It's reachable. But God says if they eat of it, they're gonna be in grave danger. Here's the problem: they would live indefinitely as fallen, decrept, corrupt sinners. Who would want that? It's hard enough to live through your 30s into your 70s, and you begin getting pretty sick of the sin and the strife and the decay and the war. Like We're five days into watching Ukraine. Who's sick of watching that? It makes me have a gut ache inside, and it reminds us of just how broken our planet is. Like If you were living indefinitely, would you want to live as a fallen sinner for all time? That's, that's no future. God has something so much better in store. So God knows that if Adam and Eve have access to the garden, the temptation to beat the consequence of death is going to be overwhelming, and they'd be sentencing themselves to this gruesome future. So here's where you see the mercy of God. Eating of the tree of life would be just as destructive as eating from that other tree that gave them the conscience. So to prevent further consequences, God cuts them off from all access. He's not going to let them come there. And here's where the story takes a turn. He demands that they seek restoration to him by his design not by their design, by His predetermined way. In the last couple of weeks, we've already mentioned multiple times the passages in Scripture that say, this plan to save you was laid before the foundation of the world in time and eternity past. It wasn't something God cooked up just because of the fall. He had planned this from a long time ago, knowing what the humans would do. And so God has to keep our focus on his design and his purpose. Here's the last quote for today. It comes from my favorite old dead theologian, Charles Simeon. 1836. He expels our first parents from paradise that they might have nothing to divert their attention from that seed of the woman who was in due time to bruise the serpent's head. If you're new to the Bible and you're not sure what that even just said, just hear it this way. God's going to guarantee that he's going to keep them focused on his plan for restoration. They would be forced to anticipate what God had promised he would do because they can't work their own plan. The writers of Hebrews say that in chapter 11, all those ancients who have gone before us that believed in God, they believed by faith, believing in a land they could not see, yet they knew because God promised it would be there. They believed that God would rescue And so it's accredited unto them as righteousness because they believed God. Adam and Eve are coming to this place where they're going to learn to trust God and they're going to learn in hope to believe him. So in verse 24, we get this. So he drove the man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Because they will not leave voluntarily. Would you? Who would want to leave? Who would willingly trade paradise for this unrelenting wilderness? And on top of that, the garden was the place previously where they had the fellowship with the God of the universe. Who would want to surrender that? So for however long the garden compound remained, here's the temptation that's before them. Got to get back there. We got to get back to that. So we're told the Lord stationed his cherubim there. Now, this is fascinating, not that the other stuff isn't. Every time you see the cherubim in the Bible, by the way, that's the ranking of the angels. There's the seraphim, the cherubim, and the messenger angels. The cherubim are the highest order of the angels. We're told that's what Lucifer was before he fell, a cherubim. So the cherubim are always associated with the throne of God. Here's an example for you from 2 Kings 19.15. O Lord, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Every time it appears in the Bible, the cherubim are near or surrounding or at the throne of God. That's why when God instructs Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant, if you're not familiar with, that is, with what that is, think Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay? What does God instruct Moses to do? He instructs him to create golden cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And he gives them the design for them. Tells them what they should look like. Put them on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of the presence of God. So cherubim throughout the Bible represent the presence of God. Cherubim are stationed at the entrance to the garden These particular angels guard the Holy of Holies. They guard the presence of God at the paradise. They're at the paradise to communicate no admittance for you. The very place that Adam and Eve want to be restored to in their present condition, they cannot. Someday they will. Someday they will be restored, but they need Jesus to come first. So verse 24 says, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Speculating again, but I'm picturing the sword as floating, if you will. I don't know how it could not, if it's going to move in every possible direction. I'd love to know more about this sword, but frankly, the Bible doesn't tell us anything more. It just says it's there. So in other words, no matter which direction you try to come at it from, the flaming sword is there warning absolutely no access to God in the way that they had known it. And God knows the mind of man. He knows the mind of women. He built us, and their thinking is there has to be a way back. But God's saying if you want a way back... You have to come by my way, the way that I designed. This world that you and I live in is filled with world religions, human-conceived, human-imagined world religions with gods with small g. Be patient with me and hear me on this there is no God, small g, that has ever been invented who is a savior. All other world religions compel someone to make themselves worthy by the things that they would do. Maybe they can make themselves good enough to get entrance into God. See, the utter uniqueness of Christianity is that the true God is a savior of sinners of which I am one. How about you? That's the God of the Bible. He is that by nature from the beginning. So the Bible calls him our Savior. You find it littered throughout the Bible. Our great God and Savior. Our Lord and Savior. All the authors referring to that, and you see that right here in Genesis 3 when he presents the prophecy of the one who will be born through the seed of the woman. And you see it when he provides skins to cover them. And you see it when he tells them they're going to be the progenitors of the planet. See, Genesis 3 is the very first time that God is presented as Savior in the Bible. Later, as you work through the Old Testament with me, you're gonna see that the ancient Jews are all too aware that the right to have access to the presence of God was the exclusive privilege of Aaron Moses' brother and the high priestly line, and that was only at the invitation of God once a year. God set up that system because our parents squandered what humans have longed to regain ever since. However, praise God for this reality, all is not lost because God initiates a way back into his presence. From God's side of the equation... The only point of re-entry, the only way to open the gate of the garden, if you will, demands a cleansing of the soul. See, there's only ever been one way to get back to God, and it was designed from before the beginning of the time. And it's been magnificently put on display. There is not a secret in this way. There has never been any other way out of the wilderness and back to God but that which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jerry believes it. How about the rest of you? (laughs) Go with me to Acts. This is where we started. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That means for you and I today, that means that all our plans for covering our own shame, trying to create the fig leaves that will hide our guilt, if you will, and all of our strategies to work to gain eternal life, it won't do it. And if we're honest with each other, we're going to admit to each other that every one of us in this auditorium and every person watching virtual church through broadcast television right now, every one of us is going to say, I've had some kind of a wilderness experience, a period of time when I was trying to forge my own way, and I was living out my existence apart from God, outside the garden. Perhaps you're there right now. Perhaps that's you, and you're wondering, how in the world do I get to God? In spite of our inability to return to perfection of life with God through our own strategies, what you find in the story is that you can be seen by God as righteous and even more perfect in the eyes of your creator than Adam and Eve were for this reason. Because your salvation comes through the perfect blood of Jesus Christ and you will obtain a righteousness that will not fade or perish or be taken from you. That's God's promise. So, a la Paul, Romans chapter 7 These things I don't want to do, I do do. I hate this wretched man that I am, he goes on to say. But even so, Paul knew. Nevertheless, I press on to the high calling in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even though there's sin, even though you stumble along the way, not giving yourself a pass, recognizing that Jesus' blood is greater than all your sin, and he will take it away. If you have personally never received what Jesus offers, he's he's the first to say, God is the first to say, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to forgive your past, your present, and your future sin, and I will make you holy, and you will be a new creation. To receive that, what you have to do is believe. You have to tell God that you believe that Jesus died for you to take away your sin. And God says, upon your belief, he will see you as righteous. I hope you're good with that. I hope you're good with that reminder that comes out of Genesis 3 this morning. If you want to talk more about this, I'll be down here in front of the stage after the service is done. And if we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you and connect with you. But also, the prayer room is going to be open after the service, and there'll be people over there willing to pray with you if you want that. Right now, i just love to pray with you about the things that we've heard and ask God to seal it in our heart. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for every single soul that's represented by this church. And I know that we are precious to you. I know every soul on this planet is precious to you. You're not willing that any would perish. You've told us that. So God, I pray that you would use what we've heard to remind us who we are in you, that there is salvation in no other name than in Jesus. And once we have it, it will not be taken away for those who are truly in Christ. So God, we come before you right now asking that you would use this truth in our life this week as we speak into the lives of our friends, for those who are scared about what's going on in the world, for friends who are in fear going from COVID to world war, Father, it's just enough that we just want to say, stop. But you're using it to get our attention. And in the midst of that, God, use us as your tools to speak into the lives of people who are so afraid. But also, Father, now that you've equipped us with the power of your word, send us out with your blessing and with your encouragement and with your strength. For those of us who name the name of Jesus, we know what the way back to you is. And we praise you for providing it. It's in Jesus' majestic name that we ask all these things. And God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.